Chapter 4 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 4, Fort Sumter. As soon as Anderson had resolved to make the transfer, he planned the necessary details and gave the orders for their execution with the discretion and skill, and at the same time with an energy and promptness which marked the highest soldierly and administrative qualities. It does not appear that he made his determination known to anyone until the afternoon or evening of the day after Christmas. Foster, as the engineer officer, who had under his orders not only laborers but boats and small vessels heretofore used to carry men and material needed in the various repairs he had been prosecuting, was probably informed among the first. That faithful officer entered heartily into the movement and efficiently disposed of his facilities to accomplish the object. Accepting members of the staff charged with indispensable preparations, all occupants of the garrison were kept in entire ignorance of the scheme until the moment of its consummation. The threatened night attack on Moultrie from the city had been the staple talk of the garrison for more than a month, and the various repairs and arrangements to repel it left no doubt of the genuineness of the apprehension. It was easy to give new point and currency to the rumor, on Christmas Day, an order had been issued to remove the soldiers' families, comprising about twenty women and twenty-five children, and all other non-combatants, to Fort Johnson, an old and dilapidated government work on the opposite side of the harbor, and three schooners were openly chartered for this alleged purpose. The embarkation was postponed on account of rain, but proceeded on the 26th without concealment and in so far as it provoked observation, it seemed but a natural and necessary precaution. It seemed, too, to excuse the removal not only of lighter personal baggage, but also of such substantial provisions as were essential to a prolonged stay of a considerable number of women and children. In due course of time, the entire fighting force of the garrison was mustered, with cartridge boxes filled and knapsacks packed, and towards the critical hour held on parade to be ready to move on an instant's warning. This again being perhaps but the repetition of many similar occasions of special vigilance excited no unusual comment. The loading of one of the schooners with the soldiers' families finally completed during the afternoon, she set sail under the orders of Lieutenant Hall with her miscellaneous cargo of human freight and still more miscellaneous lading of camp plunder, comprising almost everything in the household line, from boxes and barrels of provisions to cages of canary birds. Lieutenant Hall had orders to sail to Fort Johnson, but more definite instructions when he should hear the proper signal to come away and land promptly at Fort Sumter. At about sunset, Major Anderson stood on the parapet of Fort Moultrie in the midst of a group of officers to whom he had evidently made some serious communication. Just then, Captain Abner Doubleday, the second in command, still without any knowledge of the movement, ascended the steps to invite the Major to tea. As he approached, 
the major said to him i have determined to evacuate this post immediately for the purpose of occupying fort sumter i can only allow you twenty minutes to form your company and be in readiness to start the announcement though a complete surprise met a cordial reception and eager obedience from captain doubleday in the allotted twenty minutes he reported his men in readiness to march having in the meantime provided for the safety of his wife outside the walls as the twilight deepened captain foster assistant surgeon crawford and mr edward mole and the rear-guard of two sergeants and three privates who were yet to remain in moultrie stationed themselves at the five heavy guns columbiads which had been loaded and brought to bear on the route of crossing having orders from anderson to fire on any vessel attempting to interfere with the boats conveying the troops everything being reported in readiness for the movement the garrison under the personal command of major anderson passed out of the main gates of fort moultrie and marched to where lieutenants meade and snyder engineer assistants to captain foster had brought several barges or low rowboats and concealed them and their crews as well as might be behind an irregular pile of rocks which once formed part of the sea-wall over this intervening space about a quarter of a mile the command moved in discreet silence with the good fortune to neither meet nor be observed by any human being the lieutenants were ready with the boats and crews and the company of captain doubleday was embarked with all possible celerity piling the muskets together on the thwarts next to the rowlocks and presently the boats propelled by the oarsmen towards sumter were rocking on the billows of the bay chance also favoured this part of the movement for even at this most critical juncture the enterprise was on the verge of discovery and possible interruption of the two rebel guard steamers which had for days been employed in regularly patrolling the harbour to intercept such a movement as this the nina was at the moment detained at the charleston wharf the other however named the general clinch in honour of the distinguished father of the wife of major anderson was seen approaching towing a vessel toward the bar captain doubleday took off his military cap threw back his uniform coat to conceal the buttons made his men take off their coats to cover the muskets and generally to assume unsoldierly attitudes and dispositions a wide circuit was taken to avoid the meeting but without avail and when the steamer stopped her paddle-wheels within the nearness of a hundred yards it seemed impossible to escape detection but in the dimness of the twilight the size of the boat and the men in their shirt-sleeves so much resembled parties of workmen who for weeks had been passing unmolested to and fro that no further attention was paid to them and to the infinite relief of officers and men alike the general clinch once more started her engines and passed on her course the officers left in fort moultrie also anxiously watched the incident every detail of which they could distinctly see through a glass the while they stood nervously by a loaded thirty-two pounder ready to fire on the guard-boat had she undertaken to detain their comrades relieved thus unexpectedly from their momentary but intense anxiety the boats passed without further encounter to the wharf at fort sumter here a new but happily transient excitement awaited them it will be remembered that foster had a party of over one hundred workmen in sumter engaged under his direction in repairing the fort 
Their political sentiments had proved to be changeable, but for some days they had strongly manifested secession feelings. It being past the working hours and not yet bedtime, they were loitering idly about the works. The approaching boats attracted their attention, and they rushed in crowds down to the wharf as the landing troops began to mount the steps. As the situation explained itself to their astonished eyes, a feeble cheer or two from the few sincere Union men among their number was quickly drowned by the angry expressions of discontent from the great majority, some of whom wore secession cockades. What are those soldiers doing here, they asked, in tones of ill-natured protest. Captain Doubleday, however, gave them no time to organize any movement of resistance. Forming his men in company, they leveled their bayonets, before which the crowd hastily gave way as the soldiers advanced to the main entrance and occupied the guard-room which commanded it, and placing sentinels, the captain, in a very few minutes, had the fort under military control. The empty boats were now sent back to Moultrie to bring Captain Seymour's company, which service they also accomplished without delay or interference. Anderson himself had in the meanwhile arrived in company with the engineer lieutenants. The concerted signal being given to Lieutenant Hall, the schooner stood for the Sumter Wharf and unloaded the women, children, and camp baggage. With the exception of the little rear guard which yet remained in Moultrie, the whole force arrived before eight o'clock at night. Major Anderson was able to tender his congratulations to the assembled officers on the successful accomplishment of a movement which the best-informed conspirators would three days before have pronounced impossible, and which they could scarcely believe even when their own eyes had proof of it next morning. Having written a dispatch which briefly reported his movement to the authorities at Washington, the first question Major Anderson had to deal with was the presence of the mutinous engineer workmen. The probability of an attack from Charleston under the new condition of things rendered Fort Sumter a place of danger from which they were anxious to escape. Their secession sympathies rendered any forced service in behalf of the Union especially odious. Without delay, they asked to be discharged with permission to depart at once, and under Anderson's consent and orders, the schooner which had brought the soldiers' families carried the disaffected workmen away from Sumter back to Moultrie, leaving only the most trusty and loyal. A rowboat manned by volunteers also went back to Moultrie and brought to Sumter Mrs. Rippett, the housekeeper of the officers' mess, who, with her ready-prepared tea-tables to which no guests appeared, had been left behind. This enterprise, too, was successful, and the officers' evening meal prepared in Moultrie was eaten cold in Sumter. The whole expedition had been carried on with such alacrity, secrecy, and concurrence of happy accident that even the denizens of the neighboring village of Moultrieville, a quarter of a mile distant, remained in ignorance of it that night, and no cessation or interruption of the peaceful occupation of Moultrie by those remaining in it occurred until about four o'clock the next afternoon. Captain Foster, his clerk, a few soldiers, and his engineer workmen remained overnight in Moultrie, engaged in carrying out the remainder of Anderson's verbal instructions. With the help of the engineer workmen, the empty schooners, which yet lay at the wharf of Moultrie, were loaded 
during the night with the various articles left behind in the haste of departure the instruments of the regimental band soldiers clothing and private property engineer implements and materials ammunition and stores and dispatched under sail to sumter in the early dawn all moultrie's guns were spiked during the night its flagstaff was cut down before sunrise next morning and all its guns bearing on sumter disabled by burning the carriages the rising smoke from these fires giving the charlestonians their first evidence of the abandonment of the fort during the morning and while this work of removal and destruction was yet in progress under the direction of lieutenant davis who had come to his assistance with an armed guard from sumter foster went to the city in his rowboat to close his bank accounts and secure the public money in his charge with his own lips he confirmed the news of the transfer to sumter which had by this time begun to circulate and witnessed the first manifestations of the storm of excitement and indignation which now broke out among the populace no personal indignity was offered him however and he returned safely to moultrie leisurely paid off and discharged his workmen there and near four o'clock in the afternoon of the twenty seventh captain foster lieutenant davis and the guard under orders from anderson finally withdrew from moultrie the charge and custody of the fort was turned over to the overseer of the engineer workmen and thus this disputed stronghold of the great american republic was left without flag officer soldier or serviceable gun without even the regulation ordnance sergeant the all-sufficient floyd formula for maintaining the property claim and right of the united states and yet the conspirators vehemently insisted that this was an act of aggressive war on the independent state of south carolina as already said the rising smoke from the burning gun carriages gave notice to the charlestonians that unusual proceedings of some kind were going on in moultrie and as early as eight o'clock in the morning rumors of the withdrawal began to circulate through the city which were confirmed by the first arrivals from moultrieville previous events had prepared the public mind for sudden excitements and it was not long before the signs of a popular ferment became visible a rush to the newspaper offices for information impromptu gatherings of street-corner politicians and loud and indignant talk everywhere of the alleged perfidy of the administration in general and of major anderson in particular while the reporters hurried off to moultrie to witness the final work of demolition and transfer still going on the appearance of the militia uniforms on the street satisfied the citizens that the authorities were not idle indeed after the continual threats universally indulged in during the preceding weeks a failure to take aggressive measures under the circumstances would have seriously demoralized the insurrection the real popular excitement which now for a day prevailed would not brook this nor would it have been permitted by governor pickens all his actions demonstrate that both in purpose and temper he was a revolutionist of a genuine and radical type bold unyielding and without serious scruples as to questions of law and authority beyond his qualified control of the volunteer companies as commander-in-chief of the state militia under the constitution of south carolina he had no military power of any kind neither the legislature nor the convention although both were in session having made as yet any law order or direction in anticipation of the emergency 
but all this was a matter of small moment to the impetuous and determined governor he was no sooner apprised of the transfer to sumter than he sent an aide to major anderson demanding to know by what authority he had acted and insisting courteously but peremptorily that he should immediately return to moultrie reciting the alleged pledge of the president that the forts should not be reinforced anderson's reply was in good temper and based upon a proper and manly statement of his rights he said that he could not and would not return that he had not reinforced the command but merely transferred his garrison from one fort to another and that as commander of the harbor he had a right to place his men in any fort he deemed proper that his removal had been on his own responsibility as the best means of preventing bloodshed this discussion exhausted the subject and was continued no further both parties turning their attention not so much to what either might desire to do but what at the moment it was possible to accomplish the much talked of and dreaded collision was plainly impracticable without as yet a single gun mounted for efficient service and many of the embrasures simply closed with light boards sumter was in no condition to invite attack with only a few improvised companies of volunteers and these badly equipped and supplied charleston could not afford to risk an assault a mob might have run over the moultrie sandbanks but it had no adequate preparations with which to overwhelm sumter with all his stubbornness of will governor pickens combined an undercurrent of conservative prudence which took discriminating note of the probabilities of success or failure for the present therefore he confined his enterprise to such measures as would meet no opposition before a single soldier moved from the city the governor had ample means of knowing from both the personal observation of newspaper reporters and the statements of captain foster while on his business visit to charleston that moultrie had been permanently abandoned with no thought whatever of immediate defence and also that no troops had been sent to castle pinckney he doubtless had this specific information and acting upon it he could with impunity seize both these places he now issued written orders to have this done once more and for the last time employing the pretext that these occupations were made with a view to prevent the further destruction of public property and to secure the public safety while the volunteers some eight or nine companies were ordered to meet at their armories in the early afternoon and the governor was dispatching excited telegrams to the minutemen in different parts of the state a company or two of already assembled soldiers proceeded during the morning to business which had no need of special preparation a cordon of troops was stationed around the united states arsenal not indeed invading it but quite as effectually taking possession of it by placing it under surveillance and guard the other government property in the city was treated with less delicacy the custom-house the post-office and the branch united states treasury were taken into military possession and control a week later in a special message to the legislature governor pickens placed on record his defense of these acts of war all the steps that have been taken have been from necessity and with a view to endeavor to give security and safety in the present state of the country the convention has by ordinance withdrawn the state from the federal union and by consequence imposed upon the executive the duty of endeavoring to sustain her dignity and her rights and in this emergency i confidently rely upon the legislature to sustain the executive in all proper measures 
what a piece of involuntary satire this language of a revolutionary chief of a petty commonwealth becomes in comparison with the halting and negligent course of the president to whom had been confided the dignity and rights of a powerful nation to make his advent into sumter impressive anderson had ordered the solemnities of a formal noonday flag raising with parade military music and appropriate religious exercises at the foot of the flagstaff by the army chaplain of the post that afternoon about four o'clock he and some of his officers from the parapet of sumter and the excited charlestonians from favorable lookouts in the city witnessed the hostile occupation of castle pinckney as a piece of theatrical soldiering this was the principal insurrectionary exploit of the day one hundred and fifty volunteers with their brand new equipments were put upon the guard boat nina which steamed away for the castle only three-quarters of a mile from charleston the curious crowd at the wharf watched them with eager interest until the steamer reached the landing and the excited militiamen rushed valiantly down the gangplank of the vessel with fixed bayonets and around the circular brick walls of the work to its main entrance the remainder of the spectacular performance not in view to the charlestonians could be plainly seen by the observers on sumter they hallowed and hammered without effect at the great gates which were closed and barred finally the long-prepared scaling ladders which now at length found occasion for service were brought and planted and reassured by the cover of leveled rifles a dozen or two men scrambled over the walls and unbarred and opened the gates the command entered and hauled up a red flag with a single white star borrowed from the nina and the expedition had concluded its work of storming an undefended fort there being only the engineer officer lieutenant meade the ordnance sergeant and perhaps a dozen laborers in the work who made no resistance the occupation of fort moultrie was the concluding affair of the day governor pickens had no idea whatever of hurling his awkward squads against even its deserted walls his order was to take possession of sullivan's island and if it could be done without too great loss after precautionary examination as to mines etc then fort moultrie itself should be occupied the final abandonment took place about four in the afternoon and the expedition to seize it did not leave charleston wharf until seven in the evening neither difficulty nor delay was encountered in the examination and in the course of an hour the preconcerted signal of three rockets announced to the city both arrival and possession End of chapter four